welcome to Thriving with Mental Illness, a podcast with real talk, an open and honest conversation about issues surrounding mental health. There are no topics that are off limits and no questions that aren't okay to ask. I'm Mikkel Buck, author, public speaker, and suicide survivor who's lived with mental illness for over 20 years. And with me is my guy, Adam. Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. We are super excited today to be meeting with Kevin and Margaret Hines. Kevin and Margaret, welcome to the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. We're so excited to be here. We're so excited to have you. So So a little bit of trivia. This mm -hmm. is the first couple guests we've had on our podcast. So Yes. It's like a double date only via podcast. (laughs) How fun is that? (laughs) Perfect. What we've always wanted. I've got my teeth. (laughs) <laughs> oh, we forgot. We forgot our dinner snacks. Oh. We'll just have to like imagine or repeat this down the road. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, Mikhail, why don't you introduce a little bit how we met Kevin and Margaret? Yeah. Well, we were so lucky to meet you guys in person at the Hope Gives Gala that was held in October here in Phoenix, Arizona. So I was able to be a sponsor for their gala. Hope Gives is one of my favorite foundations and charities and one that we contribute to regularly in our business, Mental Illness Warrior, and with our thing. So we love Jen. And she got you, Kevin, on and got the both of you together to come. Fortunately, Jen was able to make an introduction for Adam, you and I, to meet Kevin and Margaret. And not only Kevin was your your message just amazing. And I mean, I had chills listening, but honestly, to meet Margaret, your other wonderful half, the warmth that came from you, Margaret, you guys were just so genuine and loving. And we left and I was like, dang, Adam, they are amazing. They are amazing together, but separately also just amazing people. So thank you. Oh, thank you. It's our honor. Absolutely. So glad we met. Um, It's always nice to meet other couples that Mm -hmm. have kind of similar challenges, but that are so aligned in, in their mission. So, um, it's not, it's not often that we meet couples like that. Um, so it's, it's quite a blessing for us. So thank you. Good, good. Well, we were going to get into it. I know Kevin, you've been on a lot of podcasts. You've been on a lot of interviews. You've been on a lot. You've been all over the nation. I'm assuming all over the international. Yeah. Not the nation all over the world. You've like renowned author, filmmaker, um, be here tomorrow, your message, your hashtag, you speak everywhere. So give us in a nutshell, maybe like a five minute version of your story in case people haven't heard because you're amazing. Oh, thank you. So so, uh, in a nutshell, born in abject poverty, adopted by a beautiful family, uh, given a great childhood and adolescence. And it was in that adolescence at 17 and a half, when my brain broke, I had a complete mental breakdown. And from 17 to 19 years of age, I was on this rocky journey, uh, skyrocketing into manic euphoric natural highs and crashing into depressions, because once you go up, you must come down. And at 19, because of bipolar depression, I attempted to take my life by leaping off the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, which is a suicide attempt that used to be 99.9% fatal. Um, to clarify, you you weren't trying to. You actually did jump I off. Did. I left off that bridge to try to take life. And when I did so, it was a leap that was 99.9% fatal. Um, and because of my survival and what the doctors learned from my my 
being in the hospital and, th and them doing the surgery they did on me, they've uh, they've hired that mortality rate now to 99.5% fatal. So they've saved a lot more lives since me mm. because of what they learned from my, my case. Oh, wow. wow. Um, I always say, I get to be here. And I believe that. I believe I, I believe we all get to be here. And that is a it is a privilege and a gift, no matter the pain we might be in. And I'm in a lot of pain. I'm in a lot of pain physically from what I did to myself. No pity needed. I did that to myself. I take responsibility for my actions. Uh, but it's been a long journey. Uh, you know, uh, in in the last in since since 2000 till till this year, uh, 23 years. Uh, 10 psych ward stays for suicidal crisis, chronic thoughts of suicide, uh, but they'll never take me. I made a cognitive decision when they found me in that Coast Guard boat that no matter the pain I would ever be in again, I would never attempt again. Yeah. And I that promise. And there are two things I do every time I'm suicidal and two things I teach people all around the world to do when they become suicidal. Number one, Find a mirror, any mirror, anywhere. Look in that mirror and say, my thoughts do not have to become my actions. They can simply be my thoughts. They don't have to own, rule, or define what I do next. If they're self-violent, aggressive, uh, or, 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 or bad. Uh, the next thing I do is turn to anyone willing to listen to me. And obviously, most of the time, it's this one right here. <laughs> but, beautiful lady but, to your side. Beautiful lady, my, my absolute better half. But if she's not there, I will turn to an audience of 5,000, and I have. And I will say four simple but very effective words. I need help now. The difference between me and someone who attempts or dies by suicide is that I don't stop saying I need help now until I find someone willing to help me. Mm -hmm. And for Three years, I've stayed alive with those two techniques uh, for 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 keeping me away from suicidal crisis. When you were speaking at the gala, that's the first time I'd heard you in person. I mean, obviously, I've heard your message. You have so much out there that you've put out and helps just millions of people, really. But one of the things that I really, really um, identified with with your message, I remember after my second suicide attempt. We had three small children at the time and they they were like, what, four, five and eight or something. They were small. And I remember being in the hospital and waking up, realizing what I had done. And it sounds a little bit surprising, but or or maybe people might not understand, but I was surprised myself. Like I knew I wasn't doing well, but I didn't think that I would have done that. And when I woke up and realized that I was alive still and I got another chance, I remember thinking to myself, I refuse to lose my life to this. I will not die like this. Like I, I won't. And, you know, we ended up having to change a lot of things about how our family operates and what we're able to take on and do. And just the way we had to structure things at home, because it looked quite different than like the traditional family I grew up in, just with, you know, what we're able to participate in and things we have to say no to. But I realized I will say no to anyone. I will... Like everyone else is down my priority list except Adam and me and our children. Like anything else is going to have to go by the wayside because these are the most important people in my life is right in my home. And we really like had to hunker down and I don't know, like us against <laughs> 
not the world necessarily, but like us against man, this big, hard, heavy weight. And it took all of us fighting together and thank heavens we all made it through. Yeah. It yeah. feels like that sometimes it's, it's like you, your family against the illness really, because uh-huh. you're battling the illness and you have to find coping mechanisms and different strategies and life structures that work best for you so that you have a toolbox, um, that basically equips you to take on those challenges. Um, I had to figure that out early on with Kevin, because, you know, it, it's very different being married to somebody with bipolar um, and then operating as a person without bipolar disorder or, or a diagnosed mental illness. It's just, it's a totally different mindset, but it took me a few years. I would say a couple years to really kind of understand, okay, hang on. There are things I can do to make things better and they are a little challenging. I'm going to have to want to do these things though. And really, really like want to adopt them. Otherwise I'm not, this marriage won't be successful. He might die by suicide. I mean, thing, you, you just know, right? Like yeah. you either give yourself as a, a, a person and as a couple and as a family, a chance, or you make the conscious decision that it's not worth it. I think that at the end of the day, that's what we tell a lot of, of spouses that are married to people with bipolar. You have to make the decision. Um, you know, is that something that's worth it? You have to be honest with yourself because for some people it's, it's truly not, and that's okay too. But then you have to figure out a way to like exit, right. So that you're not lying to yourself and you're being really honest that you're making all these life changes because you not just want to keep that person alive, but you want a thriving marriage and a great relationship and a healthy family. So Yeah, it's everything quite a- you just said. I'm like Margaret. Speak for three hours and expand on <laughs> everything you just said. It's incredible. It's hard. I mean, it's definitely a tough. It was really hard to come to that realization. And you know, it's so funny because when I tell wives and husbands and partners this, when I tell them this, right? Because they they'll say, "Well, what's your advice?" Would and I say this, and I'm really brutally honest, you know, and I get right to the point. You see their faces and immediately it's like, oh my God, like she's right, but I don't want to hear this. Or, oh my God, this is actually right, but this is going to be so hard. And, you know, I think, I think it's just, it's a matter of how, of whether you want it or to work or not um, for your marriage, for your family. And that's it. Like bottom line, right? Yeah. Um, Well, we've talked about this before. And to me, I don't know that it's any different than lots of other hard things that couples have to work through like it is different it is heavy it's it's not Mm -hmm. i'm not saying it's it's just like everything else (laughs) but i'm saying i think every marriage has to work hard through something difficult sometimes it's financial difficulty sometimes it's physical health sometimes it's you know mental health so i mean there's just so many hard sometimes it's people who snore Sometimes if hard that's, things. if that's your hard thing, then maybe that's <laughs> like, no, it's, with solutions, right? It's right. It's the same. Like you either dig down and figure out how are we going to attack this together? Yeah. And it can't be your issue and my issue. It's got to be an us, us thing. Like we're going to attack this together. And, you know, whether it's mental illness or it's, it's financial poverty or whether, you know, you've got you know, paralyzed in a car accident, or I mean, so many different, you lose a child, you know, to death, 
I mean, there's so many hard, hard things, but these things are either going to drive you apart or they're going to bring you together. And yeah, we're we, we, yeah, we, we, we made a vow before God in good times and bad, through sickness and health. And, and we intend to keep that vow because we love each other unconditionally. And, 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 and th th those vows mean something to us. They, they, they're not just written on a piece of paper arbitrarily to maybe follow or not. For me, our faith is very clear and, and, and that faith guides us through our painful moments. That faith gets us to the other side of, of times of turmoil, times of stress and times of hardship. And, and, and it's really, it's really helped me get through all the hard times that even my brain has caused, you know? Yeah. yeah. When we met you first, faith is very important to us in our lives as well. It's been a, a core value, you know, when we got married and that we've tried to raise our family with, it just brings peace and calm for us. And when we met the two of you and when Margaret, I, I realized like, hey, these guys have been, how long have you been married now? 15 years? Is 17, that right? 17. 17. Oh, that, I love that. Eight, when's your anniversary? June 24th. Okay. Okay. We'll send you an anniversary card. Write it in the notes. When's yours? <laughs> June 24th. But yours? Ours is September 14th. Oh, okay. We will be 29 years this year. Is that right? What? Wait, Dang. Uh, is that right? Is it, 28. It was 96. 96. What is 24? Yeah. 28 oh, years. That's wonderful. Wow. I know. It's I. That's wild. It's wild to me. Because um, you knew me really before I had my big bipolar, like, my big breakdown, my crash, my first suicide attempt, all of those things. And I remember being so nervous because we had kind of like in college, like you went off and served a mission for our church. I was still going to college. Um, and when you came back, when we started talking about getting married, I had already had that suicide attempt. And I was like, shoot, when I come clean, so to speak, like when I lay it all out and say, hey, you know, you've been gone for a hot minute. Let me tell you what's been going down, bub you know, this, that, and the other, I really was like, oh shoot, I, I'm pretty sure this guy's going to leave. Cause that's a lot. And I didn't have stuff figured out yet. You know, I wasn't all the way stable. I didn't all the way know how to handle it and live with it. And obviously it took some years there because I still had a second suicide attempt because we had not adjusted enough when we had small children. Yeah. And, and I was nervous about that, but I was glad that you knew me before because I always knew that I don't know. I, I feel like you always knew me and it was never like um, the bipolar was separate. It was not me. And I know yeah. some people kind of you don't know how to separate those two. Right. They identify only as instead of saying yeah. I have bipolar, they say I am bipolar. I've never said I am bipolar. I'm Kevin Hines. I had 16 and a half years before I was diagnosed with bipolar depression mm -hmm. and I've had these years after being diagnosed with bipolar depression, and I'm so much more than bipolar depression. Well, it's a disease. Yeah. It's diabetes. You wouldn't say I'm diabetes. I'm diabetes. Proper English. You are. You are correct, Margaret. So that. Oh, were you done? Oh, I was just going to ask and, and talk about like when we first met you at the conference and I talked to you, Margaret. I was so excited. Literally, I got like a little bit of butterflies in my stomach going. 
I cannot wait to talk to her because I don't know many successful couples and families who have genuinely happy relationships. And it was very apparent meeting the two of you, the love and care that you have for each other. And that's why I was like, oh, babe, we've got to have these guys on because that is the number one thing that we get asked about very frequently. And a lot of times the question kind of lends itself to be a little more of, wow, Adam, you're amazing. How do you stay with her? And I'm always yeah, like, so much what? <laughs> I don't think people mean to ask it like that, but that's what comes out. And I was so curious. I'm like, I wonder if you guys get any of that same kind of sentiment. All the time. In the beginning, I was kind of, you know, the first few years, I was I was insulted for him. And my <laughs> Uh, my responses were kind of like aggressive. <laughs> I was, like me, like, I got up and out of shape. I'm like, what? Because he ignores, I know it's hard to be married. I know. <laughs> but, but then, but the, I mean, we joke, right? Like our, our secret is that like, I'm a woman, I have hormonal issues and, you know, I, um, I embrace all of my womanly, womanly issues. <laughs> I own them all. And sometimes I, have more testosterone than I need than I should. <laughs> I mean, it, all of that stuff. Like, so our, our joke is that I'm the actual crazy the one. Joke is like she's crazier than I am. <laughs> <laughs> what does that say about me? I'm cray crazy. The double, <laughs> the double cray. What does that mean? No, you know what that is? It just means that we're just absolutely like normal, and it's yes. not the bipolar doesn't define you. You're you're a woman. I'm a woman. You and I are probably both have the same amount of emotions. I'm pretty sure I would be wait. I would wager to bet that that's the case because we're women, not because you have bipolar disorder. Yeah. And I, it's got nothing to do with that. I think also, you know, what I've found with Kevin is he's so um, sensitive and I, I don't know if that's the bipolar disorder or if that's I've just always been like who that. he is, but like I, it was really hard. I'm not okay. Truth is it was really hard for me to embrace that part of him. Most women would love it. It made me absolutely crazy, crazy because he was like extremely sensitive and I'm very like pragmatic and I get right. Like, I don't like to waste time, but I have to, I have to say things in a really nice and kind way sometimes in order to get my point across. I'm <laughs> loving watching your facial expressions, Kevin, while Margaret's talking. This is, that's the best part. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's great and I'm so so I know I get to be married to this guy and I'm oh. so blessed but I, I we definitely have our challenges we are very different people we approach yeah. life very differently um we're really pretty polar opposite we are actually yeah. we don't agree on probably 75 percent <laughs> of things we don't but it's and, and we but argue. we find a way to compromise I like That's arguing I like confrontation I'm very very confrontational person because I don't like wasting time so I'd rather just like Let's just yeah, get it over with. Yeah. Um, and Kevin is like, no, let's massage this. Let's talk through this. And I'm like, oh, that's let's just a find the time. To the problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> solution. Let's just implement. And he's like, well, let's talk about it. So, so I've we have to meet each other halfway. And I think a lot of it is also for us, it's respect, like yeah. a really, really deep respect for each other is what really is what we have built our relationship on. Because without that and without trust, you have nothing. You can have all the love in the world, but if you don't respect each other enough to make those adjustments, I mean, with the mental illness, which is, it's there, you can't deny that that's going to creep up on you, whether it's the depression or the mania 
or my hormonal issues, like things are going to happen in life. Right. So without the, the trust and without the respect you have, you're not going to be able to work through anything. Yeah. yeah. That's so been true. When you guys met, talk a little bit about that. You know, here, how did you guys meet you, and, and what did you think initially, uh, Margaret? Okay. <laughs> I'm going to go let, first. Let Margaret tell the story. I'm sorry. <laughs> Adam's like, we were kind of talking through ahead of time. He's like, make sure Margaret answers that one. It's always so much oh, more interesting when the wife answers. Come on, Margaret, you know, go for it. Again, like my version is very condensed, right? I get right <laughs> like this. And Kevin's is like the long storytelling. <laughs> maybe, we flipped it. maybe we didn't know. <laughs> So we met when my cousin was in a hospital, a uh, psych ward in San Francisco. And Kevin was a, but he was a patient, my cousin for methamphetamine use. And Kevin was a patient as well um, for suicidal, a suicide attempt. Yeah, suicide ideation. Suicide, ideation. ideation yeah. um, this was yeah. his third uh, psych ward stay. Um, involuntary. Involuntary. Um, by the way, he's had seven after that that were all voluntary. And those are already with me. Like we, yeah. So, so I met Kevin at the psych ward that he was a patient in, and I was a visitor alongside 20 of my family members visiting my uh, cousin who was also a patient and I was in a, a relationship with somebody else. So it wasn't like, you know, we just started dating. We actually became friends. Um, he became very close with my family. He and my cousin both got out. Um, we're both in recovery and Kevin would come to my mom's for dinners on Sundays. And he was living in a halfway home because he wasn't welcome home to go back to his mom's or his dad's, yeah. um, 23 years old. Like he didn't have a job. He was on social security in California. It was, it was a really rough time for him. I was, you know, working between New York and San Francisco. I worked on wall street. Um, I was building my career in private equity. So I wasn't interested in, Kevin in any romantic way. <laughs> it was love at first sight for me. So, Not for me. I didn't. It was just like Kevin was just like a family, just a friend, right? I was just there. <laughs> and that was in June. And then in October. So no, that was in June. And then in July, August, I broke up with my boyfriend of nine years. Um, and Kevin found out through one of my cousins that I was single again. And so I was, you know, dating around because I was part of my healing process was rebound um, and rebounding. <laughs> and so I was just dating just to get my mind off of the breakup, which worked really, really well. And then Kevin asked me out, we end up going on a date and the rest is history. I, I had never met anybody, you know, and trust me, I've dated guys from all walks of life. I mean, Wall Street guys, lawyers, doctors, people on at working in DC, politicians. Um, you know, I've, everybody was just very career driven like me, but Kevin, who was not at that time career driven at all, he was just trying to keep himself well. His focus was staying alive, right? So it was very hard for, for me, I thought for us to kind of see eye to eye on things. We didn't have anything in common. But I went out on this date with him and he was the very first person I had met in my entire life at that point and probably to this day that made me want to be a better person. I just never knew that feeling, right? Like I knew I was a good person. I mean, I was a great person. I'm a great person, but 
there was something about him that made me realize like, okay, you can be a better, like this guy just elevates the bar for being a really good person. And I cannot believe that I actually met somebody like I, I, I never thought about that kind of stuff. Right. And uh, it was just so organic. And he changed the trajectory of my life because I obviously married him a year and a half to, to almost two years later. So that's my story. Wow. <laughs> that, that is a great story. Um, I'd love to hear, you know, Kevin, from your perspective. Uh, so love at first sight. Was it just like, man, I want to marry this, this person? For me, I, I turned around. First of all, you have to, you, I like to give things context. <laughs> okay, okay. I was, I was in the psych ward and and I had finally been following a treatment plan. I was finally being honest in therapy. Who knew that was a good idea, right? <laughs> and 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 uh and I went to my case manager, Jana from Brooklyn. I was like, Jana, you got me in here doing 10 forms of therapy. Give me five forms of therapy and something productive to do. I'm bored. And she was like, wait, you want to volunteer for the psych ward you're staying in? And I was like, yeah. She's like, Kevin, that's highly unethical, probably illegal. That's not going to happen. And the next day, Jenna went on vacation. <laughs> the new case manager comes in, and she was this certified 1960s hippie from San Francisco. She wore tie-dye shirts every day. She was a mess. And, and I go to her, and I say, I'd love to volunteer for the hospital. And she goes, you want to volunteer for us? That sounds like a lovely idea. <laughs> Can we have you do? And they should never have left this this lady at the nurse's station by herself. She was dangerous. There were 22 giant green binders on a shelf, right? And like back when people used binders before e-files. 22 giant green binders. And she pulls the first one out and she goes, I know you can file these. And I said, well, what are they? And she goes, oh, you know, patient binders. <laughs> Privacy laws, people. You <laughs> and she literally, literally said, just do it alphabetically and don't look at the details. <laughs> so I, did I it love this lady. I don't know who she is. So I did it alphabetically and I didn't look at most of the details. Most. So I finished 22 giant green binders and she gives me my next job, clean out the giveaway clothes closet. So when people leave the hospital, they got something to wear. Everybody, every patient in the hospital is wearing a hospital gown, hospital pants, and hospital slippers with grips on the bottom. I finish the giveaway clothes closet organization, and I come out of the closet with a Ralph Lauren double-breasted polo suit, <laughs> a flared collar, like some kind of gangster owns a place. And I walk up to the station, and, and I five-finger discount, a notebook, a clipboard, and a pen, and I give myself my new job hospital documentation it was just, it was just leonardo the ninja turtle i still have the drawing it's incredible and and i'm drawing that on the clipboard but i'm in a suit in a psych ward and my father walks in now what you have to understand about patrick kevin hines is that he is a pragmatic pessimistic and stone-faced man he very rarely shows emotion he's tough as nails he played 20 years of hockey as the goalie with no mask okay and so he walks in and he's a banker, so he's wearing a suit, right? And he can't see me out of his left eye because he's had a stroke in that eye and, and, he, and he has no peripheral vision there. And he says to the lady at the front desk, excuse me, I'd like to see my son, Kevin, please. And she goes, 
Mm-hmm. He's right there. Comes at me, and he turns and does a double take and goes, Gavin, what the hell are you doing wearing a suit in a psych ward? <laughs> and I said, Dad, I work here now. Oh, my God. And he goes, what? Oh, my God. Like, he's just freaking out. And he goes, get me the manager to the lady in front. And she goes, sir, this is not a hotel. He goes, get the head nurse right now. And she goes, you're looking at her. And so they're going at it. And security comes around the corner. And here I am in a suit in the psych ward. And I, I, I had my moment. And I was like, that's it. No more Pat Hines. Oh get him out of here. <laughs> I basically remember my father like I had authority over them. This is mania. Complete mania. But they 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 did what I asked. And my dad was so angry. He was so upset. We laugh about it now. Um, anyway. <laughs> So this, you laugh. Well, I laugh while he stares, while he stares at me angrily, but you know, it's, a, it's a, <laughs> and so, um, you know, that was the day before Margaret came in. Now here's the, the, the preface to this, her cousin who came into the psych ward had already been there for two weeks. This was her first time seeing him. All the other family had been there. 15 to 22 people would come to see this young man every single day from his Spanish Filipino American family. Nobody did that. Nobody had that. Mm. Nobody comes to visit you in a psych ward. Yeah. This kid had two entourages. The di- the difficulty with him was that he was catatonic because of the drugs. He couldn't talk and he couldn't move. So the, the problem I had is that the hospital staff would roll him into the cafeteria, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, bring him a tray full of food. They'd take the tray away full of food an hour later. It broke my heart. He was starving. And nobody was attending to the fact that they needed to break him out of the catatonia. So every single day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner for two weeks, I would sit with him, same as Eduardo, I would sit with him and I would talk to him. I would tell him stories. I'm trying to elicit a response. Two weeks into his stay, a month into mine, he goes like this. Jesus Christ, man, you talk too much. Leave me alone. I know your whole life story, like cut a guy a break. And he's freaking out. People were clapping. So anyway, so, so, after that day that I had the suit in the psych ward, Margaret comes in and he, this is, and Eduardo is now talking and, but he doesn't like me. I'm the kid that talks too much. <laughs> and so I'm at the nurse's psych ward station, giving myself my next job, the afternoon visiting our announcements on the PA system. And I was rhyming them because it was more efficient. <laughs> and so I've got this microphone. I'm talking into it. I'm announcing oh visiting hours and I get a tap my left shoulder and I turned around and there she was. And look at her eyes were almond brown, sexy and cool. Oh and I was done. And I knew the rest of my life. I just didn't know how. And I was like, well, don't tell her that. That would be awkward. <laughs> so she says, she said, she says, excuse me, do you work here? And I had on a pink polo shirt, khaki cargo shorts and sandals from the giveaway clothes closet that fit me out the box. <laughs> and I said, as a matter of fact, miss, and the entire nursing station was there, 20 people. I said, as a matter of fact, Miss, I am a volunteer. You lie. And they looked, <laughs> they looked at me and they didn't say anything because I'd worked too hard, right? So, so, so <laughs> I says, I'm looking for my cousin. His name is Eduardo. Do you know what room he's in? I said, Madam, right this way. <laughs> I walked her. I walked her to the room, kind of like putting my hand on the side, like, like on, on the small so of her weird. back and her elbow, and I glided her there, which oh she said God. was creepy. Yes. But anyway, she t- didn't say it till later. <laughs> but I get her to the room and the kid sees me. He hates me. I talk too much. I duck out into the hallway and I hear her say to him, your nursing staff is so nice. 
Now you have to understand, <laughs> I have that clipboard in my hand and I've just finished Leonardo the Ninja Turtle, but it's like this. So it looks like I worked there, right? So I was nervous too. <laughs> I've never been to a psych ward before. And I thought like, this is like the shining or one flew over the cuckoo's nest or something. So you can get accosted at any moment. Like I just didn't know. So when I walked in, I was like, okay, find a nurse or someone that can protect you. And I thought that it was him from the patients. So when you're walking around the ward, everybody else is wearing the hospital gown, but me. Not you. And so I dug out in the hallway. Your nursing staff is so nice. And the, her cousin goes, that guy, that guy is a nutball. <laughs> jumps off bridges. Don't talk to that guy. And I ran in there. I was like, excuse me. It was one, one bridge, plural. That's ridiculous. <laughs> so she comes out and she goes, why'd you lie to me? I said, Margaret, I didn't lie to you. I'm a volunteer at this very hospital. I just happen to also live here. And so anyway, he, he was about to get out of the hospital. Margaret comes in for one last visit for Eduardo. This is like this 12 is like, weeks later. Yeah. So okay. I, I know you four, four weeks later. So, only one month yeah, four, one. so I walk up to her at the door, at the psych ward door. And oh I said, Margaret, God. hey, Margaret, when I, when I get out of here, could I like take you to coffee? <laughs> she was still doing that guy. He was like an NFL player. <laughs> and so, and so she's no, she, she looks at me, but she smiled at me. So I thought, Oh, I got this in the bag. It's easy. I'm done. And she looks around at the H shaped psych ward. She goes, Oh honey. Hell no. <laughs> I was like, Oh man. Oh darn. You know, but I was persistent. So she's got to shoot. You know? her, her cousin gets out of the hospital. I get out of the hospital. I go to my halfway home for the mentally ill. I do 30 days probationary period. You follow the rules to a T you're out of there. And, and here's the thing. I was getting $3 a day from Social Security income. The rest was going to the house, right? And we were getting frozen foods. Rats were crawling all over our faces. Uh, people in, uh, patients in the hospital were getting in fights. I got punched a couple of times. It was really awful. And, um, but I was saving my money because I was going to take Margaret out on my 30th day. So I called Margaret and I said, hey, Margaret, it's, uh, it's Kevin. Um, Kevin Hines, you know, from the psych ward, uh, can I take you out to dinner? It's Friday. Uh -huh. And she, oh, I, uh, she was just so thrilled. She couldn't <laughs> find the words, you know? <laughs> okay, Margaret, it's a date. If it goes south, you never have to see me again. One date. And she goes, one date, one date. Okay, fine. So Thank I show you. up at the bar and... I made a giant mistake. I showed up at an apartment with a giant ski duffel bag of lots of my things. He goes, what is that? I said, Margaret, it's a funny story. When you leave the halfway home on Friday, it's Friday. You can't go home until Monday. You made reservations past 9 p.m. Sorry. Hi. And she was like, oh, heck no. I said, Margaret, I planned for this. I planned for this. I will take this bag. I will lay on those Lombardi stairs with this bag as my pillow, with my jacket as my blanket and sleep there in the rain if I have to. But I came all this way. We have to go on this date. She goes, oh, God, fine. <laughs> go to this restaurant, Cafe Sport in San Francisco that she made reservations at. You don't order at Cafe Sport or you didn't back then. They order for you. They they look at you, they judge you, and they order for you. Oh, and so, so it used to be an old mafia hangout, and now all the politicians go there. Hint, hint. And so... <laughs> Same, so, same. <laughs> and so so we get there and the tables are these tiny tables and and the, the host obviously liked her he, she, you know she'd been there a million times with other guys no no i'm kidding <laughs> <laughs> 
And so, and so she, they get her an eggplant Parmesan dish, small, quaint, clean fits on the table. But this guy didn't like me. He puts on my side of the table a giant bed of spaghetti, a mountain of marinara sauce, a huge uncracked lobster, a votive of a plate, and a candle with boiling butter on top of it, and a very oddly cut lemon wedge. I'm freaking out because I'm wearing my only good white shirt. I bought an old navy on sale at the clearance rack, rack for five dollars. That's a two-day shirt. And a half day. Yeah. So I <laughs> I I'm I'm freaking out and I'm like, okay, I can't get anything on the shirt because she'll think I'm a slob. So we're getting ready, we're getting to dinner. And I go and I, I take the cracker toward the tail of the lobster. Crack, marinara sauce everywhere, everywhere. It was like a Captain America shield on his shirt. And I'm like, she thinks I'm a slob. I asked her later, that's what she thought. And I was like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. This is the, this is the first date. What am I doing? And I said, Kevin, do something classy right now. I was like, what does that mean? Figure it out. So I take the lemon wedge, I pick it up. I start to shake. I'm looking at Margaret's eyes. I'm looking at the lemon wedge. I'm looking at the lobster. And I go like that. And I squoze the lemon wedge, harder than the lemon wedge has ever been squozing. And a stream of lemon juice flies directly into her left eye. And she's <laughs> going like a fire hose. And mascara is running down her face. She looks like the band Kiss of the From the Crow. And the lady next to us decides to get involved. Mister, you okay? I was like, hey, Smoker 67, it's a date. It's going south. You're not helping. Thank you. <laughs> Margaret, I'm so, so sorry, but my brain said, Kevin, do something even classier right now. And I go for the plate of boiling butter and I tip the plate and four giant droplets of boiling butter fly across the table between her blouse onto her chest and they burn her oh. and she screams bloody murder and the restaurant stops. Bubbling the butter. restaurant stops cold. People drop their knife and fork, literally. And I'm freaking out and I panicked. And I think I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm a gentleman. I grabbed my napkin and I reached over. And I'm doing this on a first date right here. <laughs> Classy. <laughs> Literally goes, what are you doing? And I realized what I was doing. And I was like, oh, oh my God, Margaret, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm so sorry. And she says the first two words on a first date you never want to hear in the first 10 minutes of a meal when you haven't eaten your food. Check, please. <laughs> I'm like, oh, you've got to be kidding. Now, I, I'm making $3 a day for 30 days, and this guy has ordered me the lobster meal. Mm. I can't cover it. She pays the bill. <laughs> oh. <laughs> leave the restaurant. We leave the restaurant. Walks <laughs> a mile in front of me. We get to the apartment, and she turns to me, and she goes, Kevin, <laughs> we're going to the roof. Just like that. <laughs> I was like, Margaret, are you going to throw me off? She goes, no, no. <laughs> we go up the rickety old elevator to the roof. There are two purple yoga mats. Uh, the, the beautiful scenery of the Bay Bridge in front of us lit by the, a full moon. It's gorgeous. Behind us is the tower of the Golden Gate Bridge. And, and she goes, I said, Margaret, what are we doing here? I didn't and want to be inside my apartment <laughs> with this guy. And it was so <laughs> <laughs> and he expected like and I, I felt bad like I didn't want him to sleep like I would have slept down the stairs, stairs. I so done that. of course I let him crash on my couch all weekend but it was like just awkward, wait but hold right? on this is really important this so is, this is I, really want, important. I want the space upstairs yeah. to have like open space hold on this is important so she, I, I said to her what are we doing here Mark <laughs> what are we doing on the roof and yeah. she goes Kevin if all we do right now is stare at that full moon nothing else can go wrong it was really nice. It was really nice. Wow. And then, and then, so she, then 
she says, so tell me your story. <laughs> and so I start telling her my story and I, I stopped hearing her talking or, li- <laughs> or I, didn't, I didn't hear anymore. And I turn over in five minutes, she was asleep. I was on easy. She was asleep. And so we literally slept on the roof of the, of the apartment. It wasn't that cold. It was okay. The weather, it was Sam's weather. It wasn't that bad. And we October, slept on the roof of the cold. Warm. We woke up at six in the morning to this like dewy mist. And it was incredible. And the bottom line is she gave me a second date. <laughs> After I, all of that. All of this, I'm like, I'm and still our, not connecting how it was history from there. I'm still like, there's a gap in my head. So, so not on, our sec- on our second date, we're, we're driving to go see most deaf in concert. The following weekend. The following weekend. He didn't show up to his own concert. We're driving back. Across the Golden Gate Bridge, right? No, that was the Bay, Bay Bridge. Bay Bridge. Uh, we're driving me back, and I couldn't hold it in anymore. <laughs> I said, "I said, Margaret, I have something to tell you." And she's like, "What, Kevin?" I said, "Margaret, it's very important. It's it's, it's really crucial." I have to tell you. I tell you how What is it, Kevin? I said, "Margaret, I love talk faster." I love you, and she goes, "Um, thank you." So Margaret, how did how did you end up loving me back? <laughs> I, <laughs> After all of that, space through this whole storytelling is a story in and of itself. It's hilarious to watch, and I'm captivated by Kevin's words, but I cannot take my eyes off Margaret's face. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was quite an adventure. It um, was. It was. It was so. At least for me, everything about those first few weeks and then months was unexpected. Everything that you would expect from a first date didn't happen and the things you wouldn't <laughs> expect happened. Um, and then it was just so unconventional too. Cause my, my mom, my family knew him, but my mom was really, my mom's like my best friend and she didn't want me to have a difficult life. Right. You're going to, you, you're yeah. going to marry somebody who, you know, or at the time date somebody that, you know, jumped off the golden gate bridge and admits and is very honest about being chronically suicidal, um, has bipolar disorder. Yeah, you mom, know, every mom, once in a while yeah. exhibits signs of mania, yeah. right? And my mom just was like, you're going to have a really hard time. She was completely opposed to mm-hmm. us being together. So yeah. it was, already it was hard from the beginning for, for me. But there was a pull with Kevin, like with him, it was just everything was easy, whether we were out at dinner or we were working out going for a walk or hanging out with friends after work. Everything just felt natural. And with him, everything immediately, even that first weekend, it just felt right. And it it just felt like home to me. And I knew in my heart, I knew in my gut that he was the one I was going to, I wanted to be with for the rest of my life. Like I didn't know how it was going to turn out. You just never really know, right? Life, like I said, I'm a pragmatist. Life, is really funny sometimes and it throws you challenges and curveballs. So you just never know. But I knew what I knew was how I felt. And I felt like this was the guy that I could, I wanted to be with. I missed him when I wasn't with him. And when I was with him, I was just happy. And it just felt like home, you know? And, um, and then we moved in together uh, like the following year, actually early, like March of 20, of 2005. Um, so nine months later we moved in together, um, into our first apartment, um, in San Francisco and that's the rest is history. We got married. 
Yeah. The year after that in yeah. 2007. Uh, yeah, we got engaged in 2006. We got married in 2007. There's our wedding photo right there. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can see it. I need my glasses, but I can see it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, to, to come around to where we started. So people that think they're like, so you're such a saint to be married to him. But the reality is there's mutually beneficial. I mean, it's it's enriching in both ways. It's not like it goes one way and one person is the caretaker of the other person. No. It's, your marriage is not going to last unless you're getting meaningful things that you need from your partner. And obviously Kevin provides that. Yeah. And in our relationship, you know, Mikkel provides that. And people who don't understand that just think of it as an illness going, wow, that's got to be really hard. You you married an illness. And you're like, no, I didn't marry an illness. I married a human being that's awesome, you know? Yeah. That happened yeah, that to have a mental illness that Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I look, if that is our biggest challenge. I'm like, our our life is easy. Honestly, yeah. if, because, it, because he, it, we are each other's true partners for sure. A hundred percent. I mean, there are years, I was going to say there are days or weeks or months, but there are years when I need more from him than he needs for me. And that's just, you know, yeah. but we, we don't count. We don't count. It just, you're, you need me. I'm there. You need, you need me. I'm there. It just, that's a true partnership, right? Now, one thing that comes up and, you know, Kevin obviously has done a lot of work to, to manage and to, to just stabilize and to, you know, and Mikkel has done the same thing. We get people that reach out and say, my spouse, they're not addressing it. They're not taking it seriously. They're not, you know, getting with a doctor. They're not on meds. They're not doing all these things. And we don't really know what to say because I can't. I can't minimize how difficult that is when, when there's no stability and there's no, I mean, we went through a period on Mikkel's second, you know, suicide attempt where it's really, you know, logic doesn't work. <laughs> I mean, it's just like you're on yeah. totally different planets. Yep. So yeah. did we, so did we, I mean, there were definitely some hard times. Um, in 2011, uh, it was really, really hard. Kevin had to go through uh, ECT, have some electroconvulsive therapy. Um, he was suicidal again. We got through that in about, a, I would say it took about a year. That was a really tough year. And then 2017 and 18 were really hard because he had medication that was basically poisoning, poisoning his, yeah, and his brain. So they had to yeah. take him off of everything, which caused significant psychosis. I, I ended up with an immunodeficiency. And it was really challenging. Yeah. It was hard. It was really painful for me to watch and for him to go um, through. Really, yeah. I, you know, we get the same questions from spouses that say that, and you know, I, I two things. There are two pieces of advice that I I find myself constantly giving. The first piece is to the spouse that's asking, "How do I take care of my wife, husband, child?" Even, um, because it's so hard and. Sometimes I can't keep up. Sometimes, you know, the, the first piece of advice I say is, first of all, you have to make sure you're okay. So yeah. you come first. And that's not selfish. That's just intelligent. If you are not well, it's like the old, old adage, the um, put your oxygen mask on yourself first, then you can put, that's really what it is, is you got to make sure you're okay. If you're not okay, you're not equipped to take care of anybody else. 
So to make sure that you are in optimal shape and as best as possible so that you can actually pick up the slack and take care of somebody else. Number one. Number two, if your partner or your child, you know, isn't willing to go to that point where they're taking their meds, where they're following a routine, doing everything that they can to get better or to be, to follow a treatment plan. Um, there's, and it's out of your control. There's nothing you can do. You have to find a way to accept that because you can lead a horse to water. You can't make it drink. And that is so true. And if your partner doesn't want to take care of themselves, then that tells you a lot about how much your partner wants your marriage to work. And you have, I think a lot of people have a hard time accepting that for some people, they just, it's, it's just not worth it to them to save their marriage. You know, I think that there's this like disconnect sometimes. Um, and, and it's, and it's sometimes they're not even thinking that cause they're, they're not thinking, I don't want to save my marriage. I want to, but not enough to take my pills, not enough to go to the doctor, not enough to go to therapy, not enough to do all of the, all of these things and be honest with myself. Right. It's the other partners, I think responsibility to themselves to be strong enough, resilient enough, and be accepting and honest enough to say, well, until you can do that, we're not going to be okay. Yeah. And you, you have to be really honest about that because it, it hurts people. And then you have the children are affected, right? And yeah. everybody, you, there's more collateral damage. I think when you're not honest with yourself as the spouse that is actually thinking clearly and is not going through that illness, um, of course, do everything you can to get that person there and continue to help them. But you've got to do what you need to do to, to make sure you're okay and your children right. are okay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, <clears throat> Kevin, when you were speaking and you came to Arizona and, you know, we learned more about you, Mikkel was like, how in the world does he travel so much? Because for Mikkel, traveling is a drain. It's, it's really hard. Like, I'm mm-hmm. really careful about managing my schedule, like bedtime, wake time, gym time, like, I, I don't know, social events. I, I really have to keep those few and far between. So I was blown away by your ability to literally travel. What do you travel like 250 to 300 days a year speaking? And, but you know what? I built that into my routine. So I I'm used to it. I I'm, it, it is part of my routine. And that's what I think people don't, don't realize is that it wasn't easy at first. Um, and I, and I could, I could transition out of it now, but but I, I enjoy the travel. Um, I still follow my my routine and my regimen to the best of my ability wherever I am in the world. And and I, I give myself that two hour, two hour- To like, two days sometimes. To, to, to two hour to two day difference between, you know, well, for example, like I take my pills at the same time every day, everywhere I am, no matter the time zone. So I adjust for the time zone. Okay. So- do that. I exercise where I go. I eat anti-inflammatory meals as often as I can. I'm doing the best I can with all these things. I I, I do struggle with food issues, uh, and that's part of that is travel related. Um, but I work really hard to balance it. But sleep is, I think, one of the most important things for Kevin. So we bake that into our travel schedule. For so, for instance, earlier this year we did uh, we went to Japan for the military, and he we had to be there for a week. But I added on a few days ahead of time. Yeah. And then when we got back to the States, I kept a few days open so that we can readjust. So the few days ahead of time was the jet lag and to sleep. And what we do is we hunker down in the hotel with a gym, make sure we're eating properly. And 
we readjust his sleeping schedule, but it was also mine. It's yeah. both of our, I don't function well without eight hours of sleep. I'm just, I need eight, 10 is even better, but eight is good. And Kevin too, he's really good with seven to eight hours of sleep. So mm-hmm. when we bake that into our schedule, it, it actually makes a huge difference. So by the time, you know, two days later, sometimes three days later, when he's on stage in Okinawa and he's speaking to 10,000 servicemen and women, he's good. He's crisp. He's on his game because he's had his, he's had his proper food. He's had his exercise. He's adjusted. Then we come back to the States like a week and a half later. And he, it's like, we're home or we'll fly to California. We live in Georgia now, but when we're in California or Georgia or wherever we, the closest place to the coast, what we do is we flew to LA and we actually stayed in LA for a couple of days and readjusted again. Some of that surprises me, but it makes so much sense. I'm like, why didn't I think of that? Yeah. Travel. Yeah. We, we, we adjust accordingly to what we need. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So well, with, Kevin, with what you do, I mean, you have to be on, I mean, it's not like yeah. you can just walk. You can't just show up and smile and be like, walk into the office and just yeah. kind of have a down day. And you were high energy when you were in very much so it was and so we're just like wow how do you how do you maintain that you know it's not just once a year you do this or twice a year you do this it's constantly so anyway kudos to you for figuring out how to that actually gives me a lot of hope because um i'm sure you don't know that we have three children our oldest and youngest are married and then our middle son um, just got accepted to school in Hawaii to do marine biology. He's a commercial diver, so he's going to do scientific research diving. And our oh, old son just got true. accepted to medical school in Australia. So everybody's leaving in like two weeks all the way around the world. And I am now like, okay, traveling was never on my list. And I'm like, I got to figure out how to travel and keep my schedule because no way am I not seeing all of my favorite people in my world, you know, like, all right, now I go to Hawaii. Now we go to Australia. So thank you for letting me see that <laughs> I can be okay. We can do this. We can Readjust your sleep, drink a lot of water, bring like electrolytes for sure. Eat properly. Um, and, and I, and rest is your indelible right. Yeah. And take meds at the same time every day based on, based on my home time. Yeah. Frame. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. I know that's fascinating. Yeah. I also feel like, gosh, I know our, our time is up. We scheduled for an hour, but seriously, even Kevin, when you were like anti-inflammatory, I'm like, I want to pick your brain on, uh, you know, your whole <laughs> treatment in 2011 and what you did there. And then the anti-inflammatory, like there's so many things I feel like I can learn from you. And I, I work so hard to, um, be educated and make sure that, I mean, really, the most important thing I do every single day is manage this illness so that I can be lovely. That's that's how I phrase it, so that I can be lovely to everyone around me. And um, I, gosh, I just wish that we could have two or three more more couple dinner dates together so that so that well, I can we'll, talk more about this. You. We will. We'll come out to Arizona as soon as we come out. We plan something to come to Phoenix. You're our first phone call. Please do. Please do. Although I have one question okay. to wrap us up, if I can. Okay. So I wrote this down because I'm just wondering, Kevin, you know, what motivates you to get up every day and do what you do? Obviously, this is not convenient for you to travel and to be on, you know, as as much. And, you know, when when you were speaking and even afterwards, you talk to people that come up to you afterwards. It's not just when you're on stage, but you stick around 
and whoever wants to come up, they all want to come up and tell you their story and, and you just help and help and help. So what is it that motivates you to do all of this? If you can explain. Oddly enough, um, people's pain motivates me. Um, it fuels me. And, and the other, the flip side of that coin is that people also share their pain with me all the time and their, their most harrowing, troubling issues. But people also share with me on a, on, a, on a daily basis, and I'm sure you know about this, how much my story has impacted their lives. Mm-hmm. And that's a gift. And I do not take that for granted. Yeah. Uh, in 23 years of doing this work, hundreds of thousands of people have said this story saved their life. Um, I don't own that. I've never saved a life. I'm a conduit. I give a message. They go home. They do the work. They ask their parents for help. They go to a therapist. They go to a counselor. They tell the truth for the first time in therapy, and they get the help they need. They're saving their own lives. But they've given me this gift of telling me that you doing this work made a difference in my life, which means for me, it's quite simple. I have to keep doing this work. It's cathartic too, right? Because then It's the also- most cathartic thing I've ever done in my life. It's more cathartic than therapy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel so honored that we get to sit in. It, it feels like a sacred space to us as well. And when people reach out and I mean, I, I haven't been as public for as long as you have, but I know making that transition over, you know, when I published my own book eight years ago, the shift and the difference and just um, the power and positive energy I felt being able to like sit in this very sacred, very hard space with people. But it is such a privilege. It's such a privilege to, to I don't know, to just be there with people. Yeah, it is. Agreed. It is. It's a blessing, Agreed. you know, that you get to do this is purpose. It's a purpose driven life. Yeah. You know, very much so. Yeah. You guys are the best. We we visited a few minutes before we were talking and we had to hurry and curtail the conversation because we're like, we got to record. We got to hit record because I just want to keep talking. But you had shared a project that you're going to be launching in 2024 with us. And I am so excited. Do you want to tell everybody what it is? Sure. We are relaunching the Hindsights podcast, which has been on pause as a couple's podcast. Uh, at least we're going to be hosting it as a couple um, and talking to people of all walks of life who have triumphed over incredible adversity. Other uh, couples. Other couples as well. Um, and and to show. To tackle tackle to, relationship issues, yeah. family issues. Yeah. Oh. Um, and, and really talk through some of the issues that we get in private from other couples, right? So we want to bring that to the forefront so that we can we can open up that conversation, normalize that conversation and and make it okay to um to ha- be able to function and have a mental illness and for people to understand that you know just because you have a mental illness, like Kevin thought at one point that you would never be in a in a healthy relationship. That's just not true. Right. But never follow. And here I am with the most loving, kind, compassionate woman I've ever met in my life, and um, and the happiest I've ever been. He said he thought nobody would ever love him because he had bipolar disorder. Yeah, we've heard that. 
Well, I mean, I remember trying to date and when you get to the point of like, oh, I have bipolar depression, then just not getting a phone call back. Every right. Day. Yeah. 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 It, it lobster sauce and lobster. <laughs> not everybody like, can. Other reasons that I didn't call you back. It had nothing to do with bipolar. <laughs> the diamond in the rough. <laughs> oh my gosh i can't wait to have you guys come out here thank you for sitting with us for so long it has been so much fun it honestly has just been like it has felt like hanging out with friends that that we just love to be with so thank you you're for being so genuine and open with us of course of course absolutely you guys are a pleasure we can't wait to get to know you both more and to spend some time with you so let's do it awesome let's do it well, thank you to all of your list, all of our listeners. Thank you so much for being here today. We're so excited that you got to see Kevin and Margaret in person. And Margaret, this is one of your first podcasts. You haven't done a lot of these, right? No, no, I haven't. I first of many. The first of many to come. So yeah. <laughs> maybe <laughs> everyone's gonna be like, Kevin, would you mind supporting Margaret? She's gonna come and talk all about she's a little more pragmatic than you are. <laughs> so I think we're just gonna need that direct message from her. Yeah. So much better though. <laughs> I told you a different, very different style. I actually loved them both. It's so funny to hear them both, but watch both of your faces while the <laughs> other is talking. Seriously, that was so funny. No Parker faces here. That's I know. Crazy. And then you're both of them and you're like, oh, it all makes sense now. <laughs> it all makes sense. So thank you for I know. Thank thank you for that. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, thank you to all of our listeners. We will do all sorts of links so you can find Kevin's story. His website is Kevin Hines Story. His Instagram handle is Kevin Hines Story. You can connect him through there and get to his films and his books and all the other incredible things that he does. So Thanks. if you like this podcast, share it with a friend. This is a great one to share with a friend because Kevin and Margaret are amazing. So then you get two couple friends out of the same podcast. So there you go. If you don't like the podcast, don't tell anyone about it. Most <laughs> we just want it shared to people who like it, right? <laughs> if you have questions or topics that you would like to see covered, you can submit them on Instagram at mentalillness.warrior or on our website, mentalillnesswarrior.com. And remember, there are no topics that are off limits and no questions that aren't okay to ask. We will see you next time. See you next time. <laughs>